This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey gang, we're back with another episode of Ranching Reboot for you this week. We know CK's been gone for the last couple of weeks, but she's here with us today. And we're going to do something a little bit different before we get into today's episode. We've got a few questions from listeners and viewers that uh, and fan, other fans on social media that have written in that we want to answer today. Um, so CK, where have you been the last couple of weeks? I have been in Texas the last two weeks um touring and prospecting ranches for our soil carbon storage uh for grassroots carbon so been trying to get landowners signed up um as you guys know in some of our previous episodes it's really the wild west of carbon credits um, we are trying to fill a demand with the carbon contracts we have from buyers so these guys who want to offset their carbon footprint by investing in soil carbon storage certificates, which is something that our landowners are providing. Um, I have about 300,000 acres that I need to sign and get measured within the next four to five months. So I am- 100,000? 300,000. So um, we, we have a lot of demand. We have the buyers in front of the supply. And so I have been running around, driving the back roads, meeting more ranchers than I can remember their names, which usually I'm actually really good about remembering names. I like pride myself because I think it's important to know a name when they tell you. I cannot remember anyone's name at this point. So it's been really exciting, amazing producers, amazing, you know, ranches. Um, our landowners from the first 10 Texas ranches that got paid uh, actually got measured last June. They got their payments last week. Um, so that was about $212,000 that we issued payments out to those landowners. So that was really exciting. Really exciting. You got to deliver a couple of those checks in person too. I, I got to go there the same day that they got paid. And I was like, this is a perfect time to come visit you. So exciting, but you know, life still continues on. It wasn't a huge hurrah moment. It was like, okay, this is this is real. You guys are the deal. You're actually paying us. And then we talked about planning and understanding ag event. Bridwell and Clark was one of them. And then they're just gonna lead their region. And it's really, it's really exciting to see that. And I think that that's something that Brian, I think that you're gonna do is you're gonna end up leading your region and and you're welcome. So, <laughs> because everyone's gonna become knocking at your door and, and it's for good reason. It's, you know, you're getting paid for what you're already doing. And then I think one thing that, you know, Deborah and Emery had, had mentioned to me is this has really revived and revitalized their their ranching management and they're excited about what they're doing and it's kind of given them a new lease on life to like refresh that like they can keep doing this and it's not for naught you know 
validation. I think it's validation. Some of us need some need a little bit of validation. Absolutely. You know, droughts, I think, are, are something that we're experiencing. Like Texas, I believe, is 90 days behind. I mean, how many days behind are you? Oh, we're probably at least 90. I so mean, when we've you got two it, inches of snow on the ground right now, but at a couple yeah. we're coming today, but that's I mean, it'll help, but we're we're still way behind. Yeah. So, you know, those are the kind of moments where you're like, do I just sell this land? Because, you know, even here in Idaho, I look at, I, you know, look at, I get notifications when things go up for sale because, you know, I'm one of those people who is, would love to dream about having a ranch. And I'm like, wow, ranchers who invested in buying their ranch 15, 20, 30 years ago, if they were to sell it, they would definitely be making a lot of money. But is that, is that the right thing to do? You know, I don't know. I don't know. But sometimes if you're if you're in a pinch, because because that's what I was hearing too a lot. Sorry, I'm ranting. Go ahead. Go ahead. But that was what I was hearing the last two weeks. It's like, listen, we want to keep this ranch for next generation, but like we may have the assets, but we have no income. We have no cash. Like, you know, we're really struggling, some of the ranchers. Um, and I won't share their names, but I think that that's a pretty common story is, you know, you guys get paid maybe once or twice a year and you have to live off of that. Um, so it, it's kind of wild. Yeah, People think then, ranchers are so wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> wealthy on paper, but cash poor in the bank. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I can see that. And I think that the last two years with all the money that's been injected into the supply and been printed with the stimulus bills, that's going to do nothing but dilute the existing money supply. Make, I know. Make what's out there already worth less, which is called inflation. Exactly. And, you know, we've seen that the cost of everything has gone up and it's continuing to rise and mm -hmm. there's, there's still shortages across a lot of sectors. So let's get into some of these questions. Um, you already kind of touched on some of this, and this is like the second one on the list, so we'll just jump right down to it. Cody Hatcher messaged on Facebook, and he oh. says, hey, I can't seem to find the post about carbon credits. I am interested in learning more. Do you have anyone I can contact? Yeah. Weird, uh, you you could probably take that one. I, yeah, so Co uh, Cody Hatcher is what you said? Yes, yes, Cody Hatcher. Contact me, ck at buildgrassroots.com or howdy at, at uh, buildgrassroots.com. Our episode on carbon credits, I think that was Kevin Silverman. Is it 27? Oh, uh, let me look that up real quick. Yeah, <laughs> I actually just re-listened to it the other day because um, there's some other there's some other carbon companies approaching some of the ranchers that we're working with. Um, and they wanted to have a forum it's like, what questions do you ask? And I think I re-listened to the Kevin Silverman because I think they need to understand additionality and permanence. So episode 30, okay, I was, I was three off. Three. Yeah, so, so he just really highlights the basics of everything. You need to know what you're getting yourself into. And then you also need to know what, how to negotiate yourself into a better deal. And so, um, you know, Brian, you and I went through the contract negotiations to clarify concerns, wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we had we had everything in writing. And I think that that's really important. And if it's vague, as what I've heard some attorneys come to me with red line edits, it's like this is a really open ended um, commitment. And so it needs to be defined. And so that's things that you need to look at in carbon 
um, contracts or even contracts period. And then also, I guess, because I'm going to keep ranting, another thing that I've been hearing is, um, is grassroots carbon um, issuing these certificates, you know, our, our floor price is $16.50, but next year's payments will be $23 already because we do that share profit. Are we issuing these credits at a low price and then reselling them at the European market, which is like 50 bucks or higher? And right. the answer is hell no. I would love to sell carbon credits on the European market and supply, supply it from American ranches at $50 a ton. You guys would have the right to audit our books to make sure that that's not happening. And the, the standard we're using right now is not internationally recognized. So there's no way to do that yet, but it's a good question. Um, we just got it a lot. So it kind of surprised me that it almost felt like we were getting accused of that. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. So where, like what regions are you targeting right now to try to sign carbon contracts? Yeah. So we're, we, you know, we really believe that we want ranchers that are diverse. We want to create equity and inclusion, but because we're paying for the measurement and certifications up front and then deducting that from the, the buyer revenue in the first year's payments, we need the scale of at least a thousand acres. And I know I've talked to some really good ranches, especially when you get, you know, east of the Mississippi, that really just doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, but we're targeting higher uh, climate regions. Um, so, so like 25 inches of rain or more. Um, so right now I'm in North Texas in the Gulf Coast, Oklahoma and South Kansas. I would love to go to Mississippi and Georgia because there's a Mock Mueller paper with literature cited for soil carbon grazing where they get like eight tons of carbon increase. I would love to go visit those ranches. We're Where's not there again. <laughs> it's in Georgia. So buy some land in Georgia, guys. <laughs> so you get, I think, was it 60 inches of rain or something? It's got to be really high rainfall. And they have clay. So clay is something that we found out is. I guess it binds with the carbon molecules. Um, so they like clay loam, soil type, deep soils, since we take those three foot core samples, um, you know, the shallower the soil, the less carbon we can measure. So that's the whole point is these perennial root systems are pumping in carbon because we're measuring deeper, we can measure a higher increase. But for now, you're just focusing on kind of Southern Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Yeah, the plains. And so I really don't want to live there forever. Um, we've measured in South Dakota. We'll have to go back there again in Nebraska as well. So, I mean, if you're, if you aren't want to get involved, the whole thing is we got to scale to millions. Of years. If we got to make this work for ranchers and the longevity that these, these carbon contractors are asking us to do on a year to year basis, we got to scale and, and, and we got to go in other regions that even might be a more brittle environment or arid environment. Um, because at the end of the day, we can't control rainfall or soils potential. It's the management. So, you know, I know it's really basic to say rotational grazing, uh, but I start there and say amp grazing or regenerative grazing. It's obviously got to be in your guys' context. I'm not going to tell you how you should ranch or what you need to do. But our whole goal is to reverse desertification, actually reward landowners who have been doing this first, and then 
you know, carbon is kind of silly that we have to pay you for that, for what you've been doing. But I think that we're going to be able to stack other ecosystem services on top of that. So I'm really interested to see where this goes because companies are buying it and that's validating the market. For sure. For sure. <clears throat> I think, uh, any, do you have anything else to add about carbon, carbon programs and credits? Um, no, I just like, it's just, there's going to be so many out there. They're going to keep coming because it's as an investor side, they see it as a real, real moneymaker. Um, so our thing is, is we want, we want landowners to be the ones getting the better deal. So, you know, we take a 20% share, um, you guys get 80% and you guys have to do all the work to get that. So yeah, we just do the paperwork. Yeah. Okay. If anybody missed the email addresses that CK gave a couple minutes ago, I will make sure that they are in the okay. show notes page. So moving on, next question. <clears throat> Tyler Walden 22 on Instagram wrote into Red Hills Rancher and he says, I have a random question for you. I listen to your podcast now. We're trying to practice regenerative ranching. Just started this year and really have only had my own cows for a couple of years now. My question is, what is the best route to go for mineral? Right now, I use VitaFirm and Redmond Sea Salt, but I was curious if using just a regular name brand type of mineral, if that would be hurting my ground or soil. I thought I had heard that with the fly control added in, it can damage the soil biology from my understanding. If you don't get to this message, thank you very much to the, for taking the time. I don't really have anyone around to ask me these types of questions to. I may have butchered some of the, some of the grammar in there, but uh, it's all there. So Tyler. Best route to go for mineral. I think um, without knowing where you're at, I think about the only thing I can say is I think your program is probably okay with the Redmond, Redmond salt. I would take a, I would listen to Steve Campbell in this case. And he says that our cows pretty much only should have to have sea salt from an ancient sequestered source like Kansas Independent or Redmond or or a new source like C90, which is what I use. I think, I feel like if your cow can't exist with what you're providing in the pasture and a high quality sea salt mineral, maybe that cow doesn't necessarily fit your environment. As far as the VitaFirm goes, I, I don't really wanna make a, a specific recommendation for or against that product because I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I would say that probably your higher quality minerals won't contain ingredients from China, which is something that Steve Campbell is really um, negative on. We should get him on this show <laughs> one of these days. Uh, we'll I love Steve, Campbell yeah. And, and answer these questions. But the fly control is an interesting question. And there was a time if you would have asked me five or six years ago or you know, seven or eight, I would have said, yeah, sure. You know, if you want to use fly control mineral, that's fine. I don't care. Well, I think that we've, a lot of us have learned in the last few years, what the, what that fly control in a mineral does, that it's not just negatively affecting the flies. There's a lot of other organisms in the pasture that that fly control chemical is toxic to dung beetles among them. So I've definitely gotten away from that. And I'll say that, you know, the, the less stuff that we use, we make a few calls. We don't need it as much next year. Um, the only reason I did any pour on in 2021 is 
I screwed up. I left my cows in a pasture too long and we got some lice and some ticks. And that was the only reason I had to do any pour on was mostly for creature comfort. Um, but fly control, I think that there's a lot of cattle that uh, have had the fly resistance bred out of them. And oh, yeah. I'm not sure that's something that we can necessarily breed back in, but it is something that we need to start paying attention to and selecting for. Um, so I would, I would probably generally recommend against any, any type of insecticide or fly control in the mineral because the flies are just a symptom. The flies are a symptom of a bigger problem that probably needs to be taken care of. If flies are that big of a problem, maybe you need to have some chickens to go through and turn over your cow pats and eat all the maggots. But as far as the mineral program, I think, uh, I think you're on the right track, Tyler, with the Redmond sea salt, um, said Vitaferm's a question mark. That's, that's kind of up to you. Um, but I think the Redmond sea salt's definitely on the right track. Now, the uh, next question we have, Stephen Lowry messaged me on Facebook. And he says, hey, I wanted to let you know that you, Hobbs, Michael, and CK have literally changed my life. From yeah, from TikTok to the Reboot Podcast is simply amazing. I'm checking out Pasture Map as I'm writing this, LOL. I may have acquired up to 350 acres to graze here in Northern California. He actually sent in a zip code and I had to go look it up. Thank you for the knowledge, insight, and push to shake the hand that feeds you. I'm terribly sorry that this is so long. You all have done so much for me and my family. I don't know how to show enough gratitude. Anyways, do you think Corrientes would do well out here in Redwood Valley, California? Oh, yeah. I strictly want to graze to start as California is ridiculous when it comes to processing. Any input mm -hmm. would be greatly appreciated. So Redwood Valley, California, it's just up the 101 from Santa Rosa. I He's in God's that. country. Oh, my gosh. I would love to live there. <laughs> if there wasn't politics, the politics stuff, I could know I couldn't. But, you know, wow, that's pretty. So what, what do you think it'd be like trying to oh, raise Oh yeah, I think California, I think California is the best place to raise cattle. You're in a Mediterranean climate. You've got a very long grazing season. So, I mean, you basically have two growing seasons. You have a really nice cool season and a warm season. You're probably, you probably don't have like an irrigated situation. I think Corrientes will be good if you're in Redwood. So he's probably a lot of slopes in in like mountainous region, maybe. I, I don't know. He didn't say. I think Corrientes would be good. There's actually, I have I have a couple of ranchers that are right on the coastline and they have horned cattle. It's not Corriente, but you know they're going to be good eaters. They're going to you know not have need as much groceries is what they say, right? So I think yes. Um, your coronets do really good in the cold. They do really good in the hot, right? Uh, the, yeah, they do good in the cold now. <laughs> yeah, they've acclimated. Yeah, California doesn't really get cold. It, you know, anytime it freezes, you freak out about it. So, um, yeah, I think he's going to be just fine. So, what's do you want to talk about any disadvantages of having coronet? Like, are there? Well, they I mean, don't sell for as much. Yeah, they don't sell for as much. I mean, there's there's some marketing challenges with the calves. Um, you know, with a straight up Coriente cross to a beef bull, the steers will grow well in a feedlot. They won't finish near as big as, you know, as a straight up Angus or Continental. Right. Um, you know, heifers, have 
I'm not worried about what a heifer is going to look like hanging on a rail. Now right. I worry about what a heifer is going to look like when she's a cow. Um, I think that with Corrientes, you need to be to quarter blood. So you need to be on your second generation before you have a product, before you have a calf that's really probably going to do okay at the barn. Yeah. That being said, anybody out there like me that's that's kind of into Corrientes, I think we've already realized that if you take them to the barn, you're going to get your throat cut, throat torn out. Yeah, and that's not necessarily, I mean, that's not your number one goal, right? So you, you like how they utilize the land, right? That's... Right. Like, to, for me, the cattle are primarily a tool. They're a tool yeah. to improve the land and maintain the land. Not necessarily, you know, a means to an end. But yeah, I, you know, I do have to make money off my land using cattle yes. because I can't just, you know, nobody's going to pay me to come out here and just look at the grass. Maybe they will someday, but not today. Yeah, not today. Hang yeah. on a second. Let me write that down. Potential enterprise. <laughs> so <laughs> Coriantes have their marketing challenges. Um, and I think the best benefit for somebody that is interested in Coriantes and wants to take that all the way from calf to plate, mm -hmm. owning that animal till it's ready to go to the plate or in the box or go on the rail is probably your best bet. And I would say even direct marketing that animal. Uh, you're not going to get very good returns from a half Coriente calf at any sale barn in this country because they're going to see you coming from a mile off. The best way to make money back out of that half breed calf is to, is to throw it in a grinder, turn it in a burger, steaks, whatever, and, and do that, you know, do that as much yourself as possible. Yeah. So I'm working on that. I'm still working on that part of my business. There's a, actually I had a friend text me last night asking about the processing plant that's supposed to be going in here in town 20 miles away. And they need to make a phone call later and find out some more about that. So, all right. Last question. And then the, and then we can move on. So Heath Pointer, longtime fan, actually emailed me. And he says, hey, boss, how much is custom grazing per cow-calf pair? Had a guy tell me $1.75. And that's all he said. Now, this is like, this is a can of worms almost. Yeah. It's a struggle to figure out how much to charge per unit. Like, I've wrestled with that question for the last 15 years. My dad wrestled with it for 20. I don't really have a good answer, but I kind of have some guidelines. I, it, it, it almost has to be cost competitive for me to be able to keep a cow on pasture as it would be to keep that cow in a dry lot. Like that's, that's kind of my metric. Like, okay, what would it cost to keep this cow in a dry lot and haul all the feed to her and house her? versus what can I keep one for in a pasture? And what's, what's that animal performance difference? Now, just talking about custom grazing as a blanket rule for what to charge or, or how much to give, $1.75 is high. Now, for a particular environment, if we're you know, up north and we're talking about big 16, 1800 pound cows on some good planted forage, $1.75, that would not be outside of the realm of possibility. But if we're talking about 
six to 800 pound Corriente Corriente cross cows on native range, a dollar 75 is probably ha- is probably too high by double. So your cut the rate that you can either charge or get for custom grazing is largely dependent on the quality of your forage resource. And it also matters what kind of critter is standing on it because you don't like an 800 pound cow, she's going to eat 3%. A 1200 pound cow is going to eat a little bit more. A 1600 pound cow is going to eat more like four and a half, almost 5% of her body weight and be a less efficient converter. So those are kind of the things that you need to figure into your custom grazing rates. At least that's kind of how I've always figured it. Any thoughts from you, CK? That is, I have no idea. So (laughs) (laughs) I've asked you this question too, thinking about what this is how I would get into it. If I were to do it, I would do contract cattle on lease land. Um, So it's actually really good feedback though. I think, you know, as a starting point, I have those questions too. Um, And you've been doing this for, I mean, how long have you and your dad been doing this? Well, my dad's been doing custom grazing since uh, like 1986. And I've been doing it since 2000. I've been doing it since 2008, really. Yeah. Um, You're going to know way more than I do. Doing it for 14 years, it's, you learn a couple things. And here, here's a valuable lesson to learn, guys. All right. If you ever have, if you're, the, if you're the landowner, if you're the custom grazer, and you have somebody approach you and say, hey, will you take these steers on a rate of gain? Yeah don't take that deal even if you know you can put two and a half pounds a day on that animal it might work good for you the first year it might be okay the second year but the third year you do business with that guy he's going to see you coming and he's going to dump all his stuff on you that isn't going to gain anything and park him there for free while he makes all the money off of him like i i've seen that happen several times and anybody that comes to me and says hey what do you think of this and it's a gain rate deal runaway screaming because you're you're taking the risk and don't take and as a custom grazer don't take on any more risk any more financial risk for those cattle than you have to because you don't if that guy doesn't want to work with you on anything other than a rate of gain basis go find somebody else i guarantee you there is somebody else that wants to put cows on your grass like it is never a problem anymore finding somebody with cows that want to put them on your ranch no matter if you're looking for five or 500 you can find a custom grazing situation that works for you and works for your operation you don't have to take the first deal that's offered don't be afraid to keep looking don't be afraid to negotiate oh well i uh i think it's about time to go ahead and roll into this week's show ck Got a great episode coming up with a gentleman, uh, Dan Miller. CK wasn't, you weren't with us for this one. So I'll just tell no, you. No, I'm sorry. It. You guys, I've been MIA and I know it. So I appreciate Brian for, you know, this is his, this is his work and, you know, you're really, really good at maintaining this. So I have just been working with new landowners and trying to change their paradigm. And then also figuring out how we get our landowners waiting for us to get them measured how we get them measured and then how do we get them paid <laughs> so it's been fun yeah you've had other important things to do and, oh you know, absolutely yeah 
we're talking about getting paid and funding. And I think this week's episode with Dan Miller from Stewart, um, I think it'll be really interesting and really relevant for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Let's see what I can remember. We're doing this, uh, doing this almost a week after I recorded that episode and it'll be released next week. So he's got some, uh, it's, it's a crowdfunding platform for yeah. regenerative agriculture and Dan takes us through and tells us how that works and where you can go to apply and what sorts of projects that'll fund. So stick around guys, that content is coming right up and CK, I hope we'll see you again real soon on another episode. All right. Thank you, Brian. All right, here we go with Dan Miller. So how's London? Things are good. I mean, uh, everything's crazy everywhere, but we're, we're pretty settled in. We have a one-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, so we're, you know, just uh, uh, relaxing around the neighborhood, mainly. Understandable. Okay. Well, this week we've got Dan Miller from Steward. What the... Stuart, and it's a it's a crowdfund for regenerative ranchers. Is that do I have any of that right? Yeah, roughly. It's a, a platform for for farmers, ranchers, regenerative farmers, and ranchers to raise capital, uh, mainly in the form of loans. Okay, and and I get that, and I can see where there's definitely a need for that in the space because if you try to go to the bank and say, "Hey, can I have twenty grand?" loan so i can go clean out this canyon full of cedar trees and rehabilitate it they'll be like no you're nuts but if i wanted to take the same amount of money and go buy the same amount of ground somewhere they'd be like oh yeah no problem you can do that there there's just not a lot of capital available to be able to make some infrastructure improvements and i think that's what holds a lot of guys back uh from making being able to make a transition to regenerative agriculture is access to some of that funding to be able to make a jump, to be able to make some of those, you know, infrastructure investments. Yeah, I completely agree. Most of the funding in agriculture is driven by, you know, USDA programs that are very rigid and fixed or bank programs that are within those frameworks. And so anything that uh, is a little different than ordinary or non-traditional or doesn't have lots of collateral uh, is something that traditional banks won't lend to. And it makes it hard for, for ranchers to grow and get the funding they need. So that, that was the point of Steward as creating an alternative where you have, you know, values aligned individuals who are providing the financing through our platform. They care about the story of the farmer. They care about the work they're doing. It's not just about uh, return. And I think that that gives you a little more flexibility to understand what the farm needs. Okay. Um, is, is that a pretty good broad overview? Yeah. The, um, you know, of, of Steward as a platform. Yeah. We work with all types of uh, farmers and ranchers, we provide financing for really anything that the farm needs, land, equipment, working capital, infrastructure. Um, we have a team member who's a farmer and rancher himself who does due diligence with the farmer. So it's really just about understanding the specific farm well and adapting funding to their needs. And then through our platform, uh, users of our platform, individuals all across the country can uh, basically buy a piece of the loan we're making. They, we sell the loan to our user base so that it's individuals backing each project. And, and that's the direct link, you know, individuals on our platform funding via steward to the farmer. And it's just, as long as the arrangement is suitable for everyone involved, everyone can move forward as opposed to being stuck within a lot of very rigid uh, programs. Okay, I, I'm familiar with a program uh, called Kiva or a website called uh, Kiva, K-I-V-A, and it's like, it's crowdfunding. 
and oh, I, I've been making micro loans on there for oh, probably mm -hmm. over 10 years, um, specifically for agriculture in the country of Armenia, because I, I met a young man uh, over 10 years ago that uh, he'd gotten out of that country with his family. And he had, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of long hours playing video games together. And he'd tell me these stories of what it was like growing up in Armenia and what it was like farming and how to, and what it was like raising livestock. So when I got to the point where I had a few extra dollars in my pocket, I was like, okay, that, that seemed, I, I heard about Kiva and I was like, oh, well, that seems like a worthwhile thing to do that, you know, maybe I could try to do, you know, a little bit of support to help support agriculture in my friend's home country. So what they would do is they, it, it, it kind of sounds like what you have is very similar where you're kind of like advertising the loans to a pool of investors and then um, uh, conglomerating, which isn't the right word, but I can't find it right now. But agglomerating, close, yeah, glomming something. Yeah, yeah you're, you're kind of conglomerating those people together into a pool of money that you're you're using to fund projects. Yeah, Kiva was very inspiring. Um, I think they're one of the early kind of my online microfinance platforms I've lent to farmers in Central America. Um, so, that, you know, they, I think they helped really build the model. In the U.S., their their platform um, doesn't is zero percent interest, and it's capped at ten thousand dollars. So basically, it very, it very much limits the kind of capacity. But we have worked with farmers where they started on Kiva to raise a few thousand dollars, and then now they need to kind of scale up, um, and we work with them. But I, I think Kiva's helped show people that there is demand. There are people who want to provide their capital to farmers, ranchers doing interesting work with a good story, um, and you don't necessarily have to be close to them. And that's what we found with our platform. There's definitely a local aspect to it where people are more interested in what in regional farms. So we have people funding farms across the country. It's more about the narrative um, and the, the style of agriculture that that's important. And what style of agriculture is that? <laughs> that would be regenerative agriculture. Well, and we'll, we'll circle back later on how you learned about regenerative agriculture and, sure. and your story. Cause I really, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, so who is who is Steward for? I mean, I, I really built Steward for farmers, um, but as any sort of marketplace, you have funders and you have the far, the farmers as the borrowers. But it was it was meant to provide balance to both of those communities. How can you provide funding that is aligned with what? farmers and ranchers need in the amounts that they need and the structure and that they need and then how can you provide a reasonable return to funders for taking the risk of funding small business but not uh, such a high return that it makes it uh, very hard for farmers to actually pay and creating that balance um, between the two but in terms of like who who are most of our organization working with it's with farmers it's helping farmers in their day-to-day -day business it's helping farmers go through kind of a business planning process. So mo most of our staff is around kind of far farm engagement, farmer support, um, and the ongoing relationship with farmers. Okay, and when you're saying farm, you're saying that mostly from kind of the East Coast perspective, and that's not limited to what some of us out in the West would call a ranch, which is- Yes, a, a farm, livestock operation. ranch. Uh, we've done aquaculture, oyster farms as well. We're also done some forestry projects. Um, so yes, and any type of agriculture, aquaculture, ranching, um, as long as it fits within the the lens, regenerative lens, and we have kind of traceability of the product. 
how would you define that lens of regenerative agriculture? I know the term's getting co-opted more and more, so I think it is important to define it. I now see like, you know, Cargill talking regenerative, which I just, on the face of it, don't uh, buy. For that, me, it's about close the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I, I know. Cargill's all the, regenerative. <laughs> all the work that other people have done, but that's why, you know, standards and labels can be important to uh, create, you know, real metrics. But for me, it's about closed loop agricultural systems where you're recycling nutrients, you're integrating uh, multiple bit streams between livestock and vegetable or, or forestry. Um, and you're focusing on soil health and animal health uh, as the main benefits. That then leads to good product and uh, a, a viable business. And a lot of what we do with helping farms is also helping them build direct to consumer brands, helping them do more direct sales, helping them with processing. So the reality is if you're gonna survive as a farmer rancher today, you have to build a longer, more vertically integrated supply chain. You have to have more margin. You can't just sell wholesale and assume it's gonna go well. So I think part of um, building regenerative business is also building a economically sustainable business alongside focusing on ecological principles. Um, but I, you know, when I started Stewart in 2016, I probably use the term sustainable more than regenerative. We I think all we're, we're using the term sustainable yeah. in 26. Now regenerative is the term. So, you know, it's just different frameworks. But I think um, we have been trying to think as a company, is there an actual standard we want to work with? Um, for example, I really love the Real Organic Project uh, people. Is there a standard in third-party certification we may work with for farms on our, and ranches on our platform to at least stand behind some uh, verification because I think in in today's age as we were just saying it's uh, if anybody can market themselves as green uh, they will do it even though it's abundantly clear that that's not what that organization's about right right greenwashing it's it's a horrible 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 thing but the the way to counteract that like Joe Rogan says all the time the way to counteract bad speech is with better speech so we just have to be maybe more proactive about getting our message out. And I think that, you know, the truth of a lot of the message of regenerative agriculture is getting out there. Some of it's getting yeah. lost in the greenwash, but I think the core of it is getting out to the people that need to hear it. I agree. And I think that's where the, the farmer storytelling and showcasing their operation and showing who they are and what they're doing. I think that goes a long way. Those organizations with those really long supply chains and questionable sourcing, they can't show that. They don't have that. So I think you also, the, the kind of openness and transparency that a lot of the regenerative farms operate under, I think also gives confidence. Yeah, transparency is definitely key. And that's something that, uh, that a lot on the conventional side or a lot of uh, you know, entrenched interest don't wanna show. You know, they, don't want to, they don't want you to see the whole picture of everything that goes on. They just want you to see the little slice. It of doesn't it. look good. You don't want to buy the product if you did know, so they have to hide it. Right. Right. So what, what are some projects, like some notable projects that you guys have helped fund? Like yeah, we have uh, a handful of uh, livestock farms I'll go, go through in ranches. We just funded a, our first bison ranch which was actually in West Virginia, which was surprising to me that that was, uh, I would have thought it'd be farther west. Um, and this were uh, Navy vets. They've been the husbands from that region. Uh, they've been raising their only uh, bison ranch in West Virginia, at least the first bison ranch in West Virginia. 
And what our financing there was to expand their herd and to uh, do some value-added processing equipment and a kitchen so that they could do more product development you know, and try and have more farm dinners and really showcase their product. And we're working right now on a livestock processing facility in Helena, Montana with you know, really established ranchers in Montana that have been working, you know, that have a lot of land under management and a, and a reputation, but they sell 95% of their product wholesale. And they're creating a processing facility with a direct to consumer brand together. And we're financing the infrastructure for the facility using modular uh, processing units, which I have been learning a lot about and find them to be really interesting. So we, we fund you know, operations in terms of uh, the actual producer, but then we're also seeing a lot of demand around infrastructure and processing. So would you fund like say a young person that's getting that that got access to some land but needs some capital to you know maybe develop a little bit of water or go buy some poly wire and some reels and a couple of chargers? Is is that something you guys could help? Yes, that's exactly the type of thing. So generally we're funding, you know, farms, they can be earlier in their career farms and ranches, but they have to have generally like not a startup that they've done something, they've secured land, they're they're one year in and we're trying to take them the next step. Um, but oftentimes it is fencing, it is irrigation, it is some equipment, it's a little bit of labor. Um, and those are our most common loans. It's kind of a mix of working capital and equipment to help uh, the business just grow and expand. And, and we want to, you know, that we want to know that they have markets and they have some products, but they don't have to be big. We've done loans as small as $5,000. So it's really not about size. It's about values, their experience and capacity, um, and their, their commitment. How large of a loan have you guys done? Or is that something you want to tell me? The largest loan we've made is $3.5 million. Um, wow. And that is going to be a $5 million project. And that's for a processing, shared processing hub in Oregon. So I've, on, the largest farm loan we've made is to a regenerative livestock ranch in Southwest Vermont. Uh, and that was for a million and a half. That was mainly for them to acquire, it's a fourth generation farm, but they were acquiring adjacent land that came up for sale and they're expanding their farm stay business. They have a very successful farm stay business. So we helped them buy the land, they're fixing up the cabins uh, and then they're also expanding their sheep uh, from, from the loan. So, you know, not not huge operations, but definitely a few hundred acre, you know, integrated livestock farm and and significant sums for land purchase. Very cool, very cool. So, I, I guess maybe did we cover kind of a, a lot of the prerequisites that you're looking for in order to to even start talking to somebody about you know what do you really want to do, how much money do you need? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just give them a little more, you know, clearly in one element. So. People submit an application through our website. Um, we don't, they don't have to have everything perfect. It's just about getting a sense of what their operation is. Most What's of the time we're there? looking at uh, gosteward.com. Thanks okay. for, for that. Um, and they can submit through the website. We're mainly looking for farmers with at least three years experience. That doesn't have to be running their own operation. That's just general agricultural experience. We like to have at least one year with their own operation. So they've started to get some pieces going. We want them to have some sense of product and market. So what, what can they raise? What can they sell? Where are they selling it? And, and look to grow that. You know, I have tons of demand at my farmer's market and I need to scale up production or I have a you know, new supply contract I need to fill. Um, 
in terms of our diligence process, they submit an application through our website. They speak to a member of our team. Then we set up a call with our, the farmer who leads agricultural diligence. It's a farmer and rancher conversation. It's meant to be about the business, not just running through numbers, but you know what, what's their background, what's their experience, what what do they want to take their you know where do they want to take their business, and also where do we start? I think a lot of times we get requests for all types of stuff, and we try to hone it down and say you know borrow as little as possible to take the next step for your business and focus on this one thing as opposed to trying to do too much at once. Right. It, it's like you guys expect somebody to have like maybe five of the eight puzzle pieces they need. And you're just going to give them, you know, and you'll help them get those others, you know, two or three. Yeah, it's, we're, we're working with a lot of scrappy operations or in the early years, but yes, it's having some of the core elements, particularly around experience and the sense of market and product. And then we can help them scale up. We do have some people that come to us that just, they want to, they've never have no experience and want to learn. And our view is you shouldn't be borrowing money and buying property at that stage, you should go work on someone else's farm. I think that's just good advice across the board, regardless of our commercial interests. Right. You know, that, that education's expensive. <laughs> yes, matter it's better to learn elsewhere. And, and that's what I find. A lot of farms and ranches, can, they can get started cheaply. They can find some land that someone has that's willing to use it. They can, you know, get going. But then once they need to grow, that, that seems to be where they hit the wall because that type of growth financing is not available and growing just on cash flow, you know, at some point you need a burst to get above to a certain scale to make the economics work. Right. And like the ranching for profit model would say, well, you know, try to find an asset that you can take some equity out of, or, you know, do that or go to the bank and borrow against some of your equity to finance that purchase. Because if you wait, it's, it's an opportunity cost. And, and there's that period where you want to get growth and you want to get to a reasonable level where you can have a salary and you can actually afford to hire labor. So a lot of the farms that we're working with, like they, you know, they're, they're unable to hire labor. They have side jobs. They're kind of like, there's stretched in everybody's, I mean, that's the market and they just want to be able to focus on their business more and have some external resources. And then by having that time, it, it's the flywheel that they can grow the revenue a lot faster, but someone has to believe in them to do that. And that's where traditional, banks, they, they don't believe in anyone. They're just looking at assets and income. So if you don't already have it, you know, they're, they're not going to lend to you. Right. And you're accessing that you're helping people that don't have access to equity or have any equity to begin with access some capital. So what, um, and, and I'm, I'm really curious what, uh, what kind of terms and interest rates do you guys look at? And I, I understand that it's probably going to be a range. Yeah, the, I would say the general range for us is five to eight percent interest rates. Five being land, established operation. Eight being equipment. You know, earlier in their career, um, earlier in their business cycle. We don't take any spread on the rates. So if a loan is made at six percent to a farm, when they pay pay interest, it'll be distributed directly to the participants who funded the loan. So we're not making a spread. We don't make more or less depending on the rate, we charge a loan origination fee. So it's successful disbursement of the loan. We charge 3%, uh, nothing up front, no application fee, no diligence costs up front. We just assume that unless they get value of an actual loan, um, we're not going to take anything. So we try to make it transparent that just like people want a fair price for the products they're selling, people who are lending capital should 
get a fair return for providing necessary capital. And we found like five to eight is manageable for farmers and ranchers, is reasonable for funders. And then we also try to bring down the cost of capital by helping farmers and ranchers access other funding. So we have a grant writer who's helped a lot of farmers and ranchers work with apply for grants. That helps the business because then they can actually get some free money, although it takes time and it's slow. We've also done loans where the USDA was the first mortgage at a very low cost, and we came in as a second mortgage. So it's not exclusive that we're the only group you have to work with. We try to figure out what else is out there that we can weave together with us so that at the end of the day, the funding is 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 what's needed and, and lowest cost possible. And like, you're just looking for a little extra leverage, another place to be able to stick another pot of money. And I, I think, you know, five to 8% sounds like a lot. Like, and let me rephrase that. Like if you're on a, some operating notes or less, some are kind of in that range. Um, 8% on, you know, three and a half million bucks is a lot of money. But at the same time, I'm also been on the investor side and 5% is not a whole lot of return. You know, if you're putting 25 bucks out there, you know, and getting it back two years later with 5%, it's, it, it, you can go buy another Coke, I guess. The point is, I, you know, I suppose that's fair and the transparency is key and knowing that Stuart isn't taking, isn't taking much of the pie, just what they need to, to operate expenses. That probably makes, uh, well, it'd make me feel better, I suppose. Yeah, we, we have this conversation a lot. The, the problem is the agricultural market is just anchored with subsidy. So the cost of capital is subsidized through government, you know, loans or government guarantees on packages of loans. So, you know, USDA's recent, you know, mortgages, 30-year mortgages at 3%. No individual would ever do that. That's just the government, you know, guaranteeing and putting its backstop behind it. So similar to I mentioned with food costs, subsidized food production leads to comparison of, well, this is the cost of regeneratively raised beef, but, you know, in the supermarket, I find it cheaper. Well, that's because there's lots of other costs that are basically subsidized, not included. I think cost of capital is one of those things where when you think of it as a person, if, if somebody I knew was borrowing money, needed some money for, you know, to expand their herd, what would I lend it to them at? And it's normally kind of in that range. Maybe if they're a really close friend and they're nice, they'll say, okay, if you pay me back quickly, I, you know, I won't charge much. But if you're somewhat arm's length and you're, you're trying to negotiate, you want some amount of return. Our goal is to build a market to be big enough that we can bring down the cost of capital over time and find other ways such as adding in grants and other funding to bring it down. Um, but I think there, there, it, it feels positive to have a true independent market that's not reliant on subsidies on either side. That's a direct transaction between the funder and the farmer. And some of the, the benefits aside from rate, because I think the headline rates are often what people focus on, but flexibility in the loan terms is just as important. So for most of the loans, we give a six to 12 month deferment period where interest accrues before any payments are due. That gives the operation a chance to put the money to work to start to earn revenue from it and schedule payments. For some livestock deals, we've done a 12 month deferment so that they could finish on grass and sell, you know, sell the product. And so making the repayment cycle actually fit the underlying business cash flow timing means that they're in a position to pay it, not just from their pocket, but from actual revenue growth. So a lot of the work we do with the farm is 
where can you get to? What sales can you get to with this extra equipment? And oftentimes these kind of equipment uh, improvements and labor have a very high yield. They're, the yield is much higher than five to eight percent on the operation because it's a lot more throughput or a lot more margin. So that's where we try to get a, you know, rates important, but just as important is the flexibility and structuring of the deal to fit your operation and the opportunity cost of having the money you need when you need it to meet an order that came up or make a repair on something that needs to be done immediately. Right, right, and that's you know, peace of mind is important, and I think it's important you mentioned that deferment period, because it does give the, it does give uh, the person group getting the loan, it does give them some time to get their feet under them and start that expansion process without having to worry about having that note hanging over their head. And that's what I've never understood. You know, you, you lend on a new piece of land, let's say there, there's no way of generating revenue one month from making that loan. So where's that first month payment coming from? It's just how the loans are structured. You make a loan, you have a monthly payment, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances. So I think a lot of times those aggressive payment schedules are, are making cash coming from other places. And when people start scrambling and they try to grab it from other places and it's not actually coming from the business. So the deferment period and our flexibility in, in structuring it at whatever length is needed, as long as it's palatable to the funders on our platform, uh, we can do it, and and the funders on our platform are looking at us to make a, a reasonable decision as to what's a, what's enough time, but what's uh, not so much that we're not, you know, deferring beyond the point they can actually start to make payments. Okay, can we talk about your funders? Like, what what kind of who's your typical funder? It, it's um it's definitely values and vision mission aligned people. Um, this, the smallest is $100. So it's from people that just love regenerative ag that are the farmer's market shoppers that just want to put a few hundred dollars towards supporting these operations. We also have the kind of high net worth entrepreneur who's putting, you know, five to 50K into deals and they've, they've made money. They're comfortable putting money to work with their own management and they believe in this sector and they believe in these types of farms. And then more recently we've had um, I, they're called family offices, kind of professional, you know, private investment firms based around one family's wealth, where they're interested in supporting regenerative ag, and they don't really know how to lend, where to put the money, and how to oversee it. And we can give them choice among many different projects, and kind of customize. Like if you're interested in livestock, here's our pipeline of livestock deals, or in the southwest, or whatever it would be. And that way, we can do the underwriting and servicing and oversight that that they don't necessarily have the capacity to do but most of our loans like we just funded a 165k loan to a livestock operation in uh, Pennsylvania that was an average of about three thousand dollars so that was you know 50 60 people funded that immediately so most of our loans I would say have between like 50 and 100 people involved in them so it's definitely broad it's definitely a, a the intent is that anyone who wants to participate in the growth of regenerative ag and support these types of farmers and ranchers has the ability to do so through our platform. Okay. And you said the smallest chunk, um, the smallest investment that you take is, is a hundred dollars. Yeah. You can lend hundred dollar minimum through our platform. Okay, cool. Ready to talk about you. Yeah, sure. Always right. ready for that. If Tell I me your that. story, Dan Miller. Well, I, I come from, you know, the, the kind of agricultural connection came through my mother's family. 
they've been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the late 1800s. So she grew up on the farm, uh, mainly mixed vegetables. They did a lot of broiler chickens. Uh, my great Bay? Uh, Eastern Shore, Maryland. Okay. So they were in Pre- Preston, Maryland, near the Delaware border in Caroline County. I was uh, I was stuck in Tidewater for like eight and a half years in the Navy. Okay, so you know the region roughly. Yeah, that my family has a home in Easton, Maryland, and that was you know we always spent our summers out there. She grew up in Preston. My uh, uncle just took over the home farm, which is the same one from eighteen eighty four. So that that's their roots, and you know our great grandfather is one of the first brother chicken producers in that area. Eventually was squeezed out by Purdue, which is based there. And so that region has just become, you know, enormous brother chicken operations, corn and soy. And so, you know, spending time out there and just seeing the depletion of the Chesapeake Bay ecosystem, like the native oyster populations at 0.3% of its original numbers. Really? And run off. Go ahead. I was just, really? I mean, that's 0.3%. 0.3%. Just decimated, which then means the water is not clear, which then hurts other species. It's the keystone of the bay. So it, it really, to me, came from learning about aquaculture and oyster farms and that as kind of a core element of restoring the bay and just seeing you know, all the fields planted in the Eastern shore, but, but, but the fact that the region was depressed, there was, there was not much opportunity and there was not value going to the region. So I, I wanted to figure out how could I support you know, a different type of agriculture I learned about uh, regenerative agriculture through a chef that I met in the Baltimore area who was sourcing directly from farmers and ranchers. So I started to you know, meet the farmers and ranchers he was buying from with these great stories and amazing products that he's featuring and telling everyone about. And they, they, none of them could get funding. And it just seemed confusing to me that the consumer demand is pulling. You know, Consumers want what they have, but, but they can't get funding to expand their production. So this a gap somewhere. And then that led to the, the idea of Steward. Um, prior to Steward, I was the co-founder of Fundrise, which was the first real estate crowdfunding platform. So I had spent five, six years building online platforms to raise funding online. Uh, my father's family was in commercial real estate. So I knew that side. So I'm kind of a mix of like commercial real estate and agriculture with a finance and technology background. So it's actually perfectly suited to what I am uh, doing now but it, it, does, it is somewhat obscure, I would say, to have all of those skill sets. Uh, I don't think collecting skill sets as you progress through life is, is a bad habit. <laughs> no, and, and they're needed. And that's when I think with farmers and ranchers, you know, what I can assist them with is figuring out funding and then figuring out where to get it and how to think about all the different elements of their business and, and that's how I, I think of what, you know, what, what can I enable in this market and how can I support the type of work? Because it came from an ecological perspective, but the same challenges that the Chesapeake Bay has seen is every watershed in the country and the world is, is facing. And so it's up to putting resources in the hands of the farmers and ranchers who are taking care of the land. I'm, I'm curious to ask you about Fundrise. Like, it, sure. I want what were your major lessons learned? Like, since you've you've obviously done two crowdfunding platforms, and they've both been successful. I mean, fund I didn't I've never heard of Fundrise, but that doesn't mean it wasn't successful. <laughs> so, what did you learn from Fundrise that you incorporated this time? The so for Fundrise, you know, from the beginning, it was about a 
multi-year process of going through complicated regulations and trying to figure out how do we sell, how do we raise money online for real estate projects from anybody. And so I learned through that process that it, you have to take so many different paths to try to figure out how to make these very cumbersome and arcane regulatory frameworks around raising money fit the kind of digital broad-based social age. And that's a very, uh, there's very few people in that space willing to kind of go through the regulatory requirements, but also having kind of a nimble digital sense of things. And so through Stewart, it took years for us to figure out the regulatory pathway where we could make loans through our platform and distribute them broadly to our users. And so I think that that perseverance around, I've probably tried five or six different methods of, you know, fundraising regulations, but the reality is you have to adapt it for the customer. And the thing I've learned, particularly as I've been in agriculture more is these operations, they don't have time or focus or extra staff to handle a lot of the complicated regulatory marketing things. It has to be very easy and simple. Real estate firms tend to have capital and are fairly established and have resources. The, the time that a farmer and rancher has to dedicate to funding is basically nothing. They already don't have enough time for their own business, let alone business support services and everything else. So trying to build a platform and process that's very easy for farmers and ranchers was the learning that I that was adapted. Um, and that took a few years to really figure out the customer and how to serve them and, and build a platform that worked. Very good. Very cool. Very cool. So how, how you're in London right now, and I, I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and uh, your, I believe your assistant, the one that contacted us to set this uh, interview up, said you were there for work. So how is your work with Steward taking you to London? I'm, I'm here out of preference. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, and my wife and I, after we got married, moved to Europe. We thought we'd be a few months moving around and ended up now settling here. So I, I used to spend a few weeks every few months doing trips through farms. You know, we have a lot of farms in Oregon. I spent a lot of time out there in Louisiana and Michigan. And then we build a remote team. So our team's based mainly across the U.S. Out of 14 staff, 12 are in the U.S. I'm in uh, the U.K., our another team member is in New Zealand, but we're in all of these communities. You know, we have people all across the country working with all of farmers and ranchers. So I, you know, I'm, You're with I'm me in remote. my basement studio doing this podcast. Yeah. And so I, I find that how I always felt about Stuart from the beginning was there's no one place you can be to serve the agricultural community. It's It's a dispersed community in many different regions and having a team that's remote and in these places and has more diversity than necessarily being a company just in San Francisco talking about change in agriculture that really doesn't, is not connected to the culture of agriculture. So we built the team to, to, to be diverse and spread out. And, and now I've, I've just stayed in London and it's always a bit confusing to people, but I find when I talk to farmers and ranchers, they're stuck at their their, their land so much that when they hear that I'm somewhere else, then they always tell me stories about where they've traveled and how excited they were to go spend a few months farming in Brazil once or whatever it is. So I think actually it touches into the wanderlust of agriculture's very physical place-based business. And you don't always have the opportunity to, to go elsewhere. 
whenever we take a trip and I actually decide I'm going to get off the ranch for any length of time, we always spend time driving through the back roads, looking at cows, looking at grass, looking at other agricultural operations, and just, you know, looking at how, how working facilities like cattle working facilities in other parts of the country can be radically different, like in a specific geographic area, farming practices can be, you know, just depending on the crop and the soil type, they can be completely different. It's always interesting for me to see that. So that's my segue into asking you about what the food scene is like in London and how, like, how easy is it in London to be able to connect with the people that are growing your food or at least be able to if they're out in the countryside? The, the farmer's market culture is strong. Um, Europe definitely, I think, has a history of more protections and more support for smaller scale agriculture. So that's definitely vibrant. But I do find it to be less entrepreneurial than America. I mean, I guess not that surprisingly. So I, I find more creative, more um, dynamic farming and ranching operations in the U.S. in terms of their branding, their digital presence, their storytelling, you know, not thinking of it not just around being a producer, but around showcasing what they have um, and the depth of it. Certainly in London, you can source anything you want and you can try anything from all over the world. Um, but there, there is a history of, of small scale, smallholder agriculture is what they call it. And they're now, uh, UK having recently exited from the European Union, they're rethinking their agricultural policy. And so they're similar to where we are in the US. There's an policy shift that's trying to move towards supporting more regenerative agriculture, but the reality it's mainly talk versus on the ground, not much has changed. And so I think they're, they're trying to figure out what, you know, what, how do they chart their course? But at the end of the day, it's, it's still a country dominated by big ag. I don't know if there's really any country that's not dominated by big ag at this point. Uh, so I don't know the example that is it, but but they definitely are are one of them. They followed America's uh, path. You got any favorite UK farmers you want to give a shout out to? Yes, I will give a shout out to Galileo Farm. Uh, they are the livestock farm that we buy uh, poultry and everything from. I actually have a porchetta uh, in 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 the fridge right now that I prepared earlier today. That's going to go in the oven tomorrow for a bunch of hours. So that's my that's our go to. For the uncultured of us listening to the podcast, what what is that? A pork so porchetta? Yeah, it's a sh uh, shoulder um, pig, and then it's like spread out flat, and then rolled uh, rolled up with a lot of fennel and herbs, and then roasted for a bunch of hours. And you can slice it or slice it and make it into a sandwich. It's really a it's like a Italian uh, heritage, but a fantastic way to cook meat. I've, I have heard it said that the English conquered the world in search of a good meal. Is there any <laughs> truth to that living in London? I think so. I mean, I, the thing I'm amazed at here is that just the diversity of product, like everyone sells into the London market because it's just a global hub with, with every product. So well, there's like a, yeah. what, 11 million people that live there. It's a tw yeah, 12 in the area. And it's been the center of global commerce for, hundreds of years, America thinks they created the modern modern economic system, but really the English created it and then it was taken over by America after the war. So they've just been that, you know, trading hub for 
a long time. So you just see amazing diversity of products and cultures um, and regions. But you know, nothing, nothing is more enjoyable for me than going out and visiting farms. I'm actually gonna go visit a, a hemp farm in Oxfordshire in a few weeks. They're looking at doing a processing facility. And we've done a lot of uh, lending to hemp farms in the US. It's another sector that's ignored. So I, I, for me, it's interesting to see in different countries, um, just kind of comparing notes, as you were saying, there, there's a handful of Australians I've met here too, and now looking at some projects in Australia. And yeah, I just feel like I have a good lens on what's happening in different countries and different markets and how policy shifting and how farmer practices are different. But there's definitely a global movement towards you know, regenerative ecological agriculture, no question, across the world, across cultures, across languages. 100%. And I think, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, how Cargill has started to use the term regenerative. And that's, you know, it's a little frightening, honestly. Um, I, I think that a lot of companies, the more they start to understand regenerative and the more they're going to get, the more they start to understand like their own emissions, all the own emissions analysis. And I don't want to get down that rabbit trail, but these companies are starting to, you know, understand what regenerative is. And I think they realize that they really can't greenwash it because it's something like true regenerative. You're making things better. I mean, it's not like we can just say, oh, well, whatever we're doing was we're going to make a few changes and call that sustainable, like to go from sustainable to regenerative. It's not just a shift in the lexicon. It's a major shift in the management. Right. And I don't think it's something like for now until they redefine the term or greenwash it too much for now. I think that, I think we've got a good handle on regenerative and you're right. It is, it is almost a global phenomenon and part of that is thanks to the internet because, you know, just like we said earlier, through the magic of Zoom, you're in London, but you're also here in my basement studio. Same way we can connect with anybody else anywhere in the world that's got decent internet. And that exchange of ideas is, is really starting to empower some fundamental change in agricultural systems all across the world. I agree, and, and particularly that reading and knowledge and people learning about how things were done in the past before fossil fuels and a lot of the techniques that have been around a very long time. And that that's being shared quickly. I mean, for me, Wendell Berry was the person in the books that I read that really kind of grounded me and opened my eyes. Um, but there's Sir Albert Howard, there's Rudolf Steiner, there's uh, a lot of different um, people and most of them, you know, touch upon indigenous cultures that they learned from. And so I think that the knowledge that used to have to be found in a library uh, that wasn't accessible is now distributed and, and people are, are learning from each other. So I, I am very positive on the broader movement. Obviously things look bleak from a high level perspective, but pe- new people are going into agriculture that don't come from farm backgrounds, that people are in it or doing things differently. The policy is shifting, the consumer demand is shifting. So it, it, it is a time of, of significant change, but we're up against, a, you know, a hundred years of centralization and, you know, agglomeration to create these enormous organizations that are going to fight against it. I think some of the argument is, is that, oh, that regenerative stuff won't work. And a lot of regenerative management principles 
like you said, are rooted in indigenous management or, or the way the indigenous people lived more in harmony with their environment than we're doing. And a lot of that knowledge was lost. And to say that regenerative agriculture is an experiment or it doesn't work or it's voodoo magic is very short-sighted because I think what we're seeing is the chemical fertility model and tillage model is the experiment that's failing. And yeah, it's projection. They, they have a model that it doesn't sustain itself from its own resources. And how can something that can't sustain itself from its own resources continue indefinitely? It can't. Right. And that's, we're seeing fertilizer prices get really, really high. Like I, they've even quit talking about it in the news. <laughs> China shut off phosphate exports last year, which was, you know, 40% of global phosphates. What do you think that's going to do to phosphorus prices when people are trying to go back and fertilize for corn and soybeans next year? It's going to be sky high. Anhydrous ammonia, same thing. Um, corn's high right now, which means cattle feed is high. I mean, by cattle feed, I mean the crap they'd be eating if they were in a feedlot. Like, and those price indexes all kind of chase each other. You know, if one goes up, they'll all kind of follow each other because one's in demand. People are paying a little more for that. They're going to try and find something else. And everybody just keeps that price creeping up. Yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. But, but that's the model I see with conventional ag is expenses going up, revenue and margins going down and a significant overhead. And I'm like, how, do, how does that work? You know, other than the subsidy, it doesn't support itself. I would, I would challenge that if they took away the subsidies and the crop insurance for corn and soybeans and cotton, that within two years, those crops would basically not be grown. Yeah, the market would collapse. And that's why if, if, if they did pull all the policy out of ag, which actually net net would, I think, be a beneficial thing, even though it'd be chaos for a while, it would be the resilient regenerative farms that are using their own resources and have small direct sales and supply chains that, that would be okay. And that was shown in, in the pandemic. In the beginning stages of COVID, when things were haywire, it was a small to mid-sized regional operations that had direct customer relationships and controlled their business that, that thrived, actually, that sold more than ever in the you know, large, long ag supply chain. So unfortunately, government policy is what has distorted the market, but there's so much political support for the status quo that I don't see it changing much anytime soon. They're now putting more money towards regenerative, but in general, the system is supported by, you know, conventional. I think that the legislators on both sides of the aisle are so bought off that they have no choice but to double down. No, they, they can't. I mean, you can't be a national level. I mean, certainly you couldn't get elected president going against the agricultural interests. You wouldn't just you wouldn't get the votes in the states that have it. So it is political control. That's why it will require grassroots political movement over time. But first, you have to prove the viability of regenerative agriculture. I agree with what you said. It's, it's silly that it has to be proven because it has been acting, you know, existence for forever. But I think as you show more viability in its model as an independent model, then it will say, well, we can do a lot more of this and let's do more of this as opposed to this. Uh, but it's going to be a fight. And I think it's going to be uphill both ways in the snow 
<laughs> but you got to do it. There's no alternative. You got to do it. No, there isn't. I mean, I think once, once a producer pulls back and sees regenerative agriculture for what it is and sees a regenerative farm that doesn't have bare blowing soil, that doesn't have giant erosion ditches, that doesn't have, you know, huge confinement barns and big giant manure pits. I think once people finally see the truth of how, of, of what kind of environment food can be grown in, I think they'll, they'll come around. But again, it's, it's getting that message out there and it's, it's showing the positive story of all these tens of thousands of regenerative producers versus a handful of mega feedlots or a handful of, of mega beef processing plants. Or, you know, all the people that have, that want to keep two dozen chickens or that are doing two to two to 3,000 chickens a year, you know, two to 3,000 chickens a year. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. But if uh, we just had my friend Kurt Dale on the podcast and we went over kind of his volumes, 2,000 chickens is a lot of money. I mean, and you don't need but a bit about a postage stamp to raise 2,000 chickens. And, and what, a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, networks of producers that need shared infrastructure, you know, that but existed at a cooperative level 100 years ago, but it has been consolidated out. And so you're, you're, you just have to build all rebuild all elements of that supply chain to support, you know, small to mid-sized operators because they've just been pushed out. So I, it, it's going to take a lot of work across all aspects of the market. But the consumer awareness has changed, and I think that's driving all of it. It's that people want, they want that product. They want traceability. They know for health purposes, it's not good to buy the conventional product. And now they're learning more about the ecological consequences. If we could just get a few more people to understand about the sugar lie and, and to stop blaming fat for what sugar's doing. We get about six more people to understand that and talking about it. I think we might be getting somewhere. I, I agree, but like you, can, you can't mention that apparently. The, the sugar mafia will come after you. But yes, it's it's uh, it's all a lie, and that and that's where I think people's distrust in in corporations and what the government's telling them is real because it's it's been a lie. Uh, it's been mainly just parroted industry guidelines. So I I think that's why kind of both both sides of all types of people are interested in regenerative agriculture because they're no one's buying what the system's offering and they don't believe what is being told and, and they're doing the work themselves to find a producer that they believe in and visit a farm and check it out or you know find a butcher that is really able to speak to the product and once you go down that road it's hard to go back because then you you, you realize the difference i agree i there is a a video that i saw Gosh, I can't remember if it was on, I think it was Facebook. I think it was my friend, Justin Bates on Facebook. He made an excellent video. Like he went around to local stores and bought 8515 ground beef. And then he had some of his own and it was all on video. He weighed everything up before, had the weights down on a chart, cooked everything, drained off the liquid, weighed the liquid, then weighed the meat and had all the results. And I, I have I can't remember any of his numbers, but the, the loss off of two pounds of grocery store 8515 
was very significant. Like it was 25 plus percent of the weight that you're pouring off in the liquid and the volume of liquid, like the fat that came off of it, it didn't, I'm not saying like you, you drain fat off into a jelly jar and it's going to look tasty, but there was a difference, right? The stuff off the, off the commodity product, it just didn't, it didn't look as good. It looked gross. The meat, the, the liquid that was drained off of the Bates family beef, it actually didn't look bad. I'm not saying I would have just, you know, knocked it back and shot it down like a, like a good shooter or anything. Not saying that at all. It just, it, it didn't look as gross is what I'm saying. Um, but to wrap, wrap this bit up, the meat that they cooked, that they raised, that was pasture finished, lost almost no weight, like a couple of ounces off of two pounds, which isn't anything when you're talking about, you know, the grocery store 8515 losing almost 30% of its weight or more. And I think I've even seen the same thing done with chicken. And I think it might even be worse with chicken. And, and that's where I think, you know, the kind of localizing production and buying is it, it's just a better product. The conventional ag, the kind of com large commodity ag, it can't compete on quality. It's not possible. They, they just compete on price. That's the only thing they have because they've externalized all the costs and they get lots of subsidy. But you can't make a superior product with inferior ranching and farming practices. And, and, that, and that there's nothing that can be done to change that. I agree. I agree. Well, Dan, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time and uh, you're in London. So as we're recording this, it's uh, it's not far from midnight for you, is it? At 1030 at night, not, not too bad. I, I really, I'm used to, to staying up late, but I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Any any ranchers that are listening to this, I'd love for them to reach out to us at Coast Steward and find a way to support them. Okay. We'll do that. Anywhere else we need to point people? Anywhere else you'd like to send some traffic? That's all. They can just come to us and they can also email me uh, dan at gosteward.com if they if they have any questions or want to chat about anything. But I, I, this is my work every day. So anytime I can talk to a farmer rancher, that's always what the, the purpose of the business is. Great stuff, Dan. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks for joining me for this great episode. Thanks, Brian. All right. Well, I will let you sign off and get some sleep, sir. And the rest of y'all have a great week. Appreciate it. Same to you.